have your Bibles, turn to the book of Psalms. We'll be in Psalm 13 today. And I do hope that you had a wonderful Independence holiday with your family and friends. And I hope you can say with the Addison family that you do love this great land that God's blessed us to live in. You know, it's a question that we often ask or is often asked of us. How long? How long is this movie? How long is this trip? How long is this game? How long is this line? How long is this wait before I can have my table to eat at this restaurant? And certainly one that I hope you're not asking right now is, how long is this sermon? Today's psalm begins with that very same question. How long? But he's not asking it about things that don't really matter, honestly. He's asking the question that perhaps you've asked before. How long, O Lord? How long? Today's psalm is one of the most common types of psalms that we're going to see in this series on the psalms. It's called a lament psalm. In their Old Testament survey textbook, Andrew Hill and John Walton say that there are really three general types of psalms. There's lament psalms, there's wisdom psalms, and we have what's called praise psalms. Now last week we looked primarily at Psalm 1 and that is a wisdom psalm. It compares and contrasts the man who is blessed by God and the one who is wicked. It's a wisdom type of psalm. We know that a psalm is a praise psalm usually from the very first line. It will give like an imperative command such as sing to the Lord. We can often know if a psalm is a lament psalm as well by the very first line in the psalm. The name of God will usually be spoken. And it will be a declaration to God, an appeal to God, a plea to God. Now, as you have your place in Psalm 13, I want to quickly look at the first verse of several of the early psalms. So you can see these different types of psalms. So Psalm 3, 1 says this, O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me. Now what kind of psalm is that? Is that a praise psalm, a wisdom psalm, or a lament psalm? I'm asking. Lament, that's right. Look at the next psalm, Psalm 4, 1a, the first half of that verse. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. What kind of psalm is that? Lament, lament. The next psalm, Psalm 5, 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Notice again, the name of God is spoken and it's a direct plea to God. What kind of psalm is that? Lament. Psalm 6 and Psalm 7 are lament. In fact, Psalms 3 through 7 are like a little package of lament psalms. But look at Psalm 8.1 just to give you some variety. Psalm 8.1. O oh Lord, well there's God's name, right? But notice, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. What kind of psalm is that? 
It's a praise psalm. It's such a good one that it's been put to music that we sing in the church. We, haven't, we don't sing that song much anymore, right? Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Wonderful song. Straight scripture. Today, we're going to be looking at a very short but profound lament psalm. Look at Psalm 13. Six verses. But we find the full range of human emotion in these verses. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I've prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. Because he has dealt bountifully with me. I have four truths I want to show you from these verses. And really, the first one is a broad kind of principle, but it's one that's very important. Number one is that sincere believers cannot avoid having these kind of questions. If you are a real follower of Jesus... You are going to go through times in your life where you will have these very questions. Why, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? Most of us have been taught not to question those in authority over us. So it doesn't... Shouldn't be surprising then that if there is one who is the supreme authority over everyone and everything, then we shouldn't question him. Yet as we read the Psalms, we see a very different picture of the spirituality that we've adopted in the American church. The first two verses of Psalm 13 contain four questions. And they're not superficial questions like, how long is this movie going to last? They are deep-seated questions that plumb the heart of God and the heart of man. Jared Wilson writes in his commentary on Psalm 1, Such questions reveal a faith seeking to understand in the midst of painful experiences that shake the very foundation of believing. Just to show you that you don't have to be alone with your questions to the Lord, I want to show you four spiritual giants from Scripture who had strong questions like this for God. Abraham, Job, Jeremiah, and John the Baptist. Let's start with Abraham. Abraham had already been promised by God to have a great nation come forth from him. Many, many descendants. He's been promised already multiple times by God. Yet we come to Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. Read with me. The Bible says, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now here's the question. But Abram said, O God, what 
Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Who is Eliezer of Damascus? That is his chief servant. That's the highest ranking servant in his house. The one that he has entrusted a stewardship to. He says, God, we're childless. How can my reward be great? Surely he was thinking, though the psalm had not been written yet by this time, how long, O oh Lord, are we going to continue without children? How is this blessing going to come to pass? If you keep reading in that chapter, God doesn't scold him. God answers him. Job. He was a righteous man, a blessed man by God, with a large family and many material blessings. But just like that, it's taken away in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2. We come to Job chapter 3, and the questions that he is asking really is, Oh Lord, how long am I to live like this in utter ruin? Look at verses 20 and 22. And there's a mistake in your insert. It says John 3. It actually should be Job 3, 20 through 22. And don't think that he's speaking about some third person here. This is, he's talking about himself. He says, why is light given to him who is in misery? Lord, I'm miserable. And life to the bitter in soul, who long for death but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Lord, how long am I to live like this? I'd rather die. Honest, heartfelt questions. Or Jeremiah who's called the weeping prophet, who has just witnessed the destruction of the city of God, Jerusalem. And there's a whole book in the Bible of how he responds to that called Lamentations, his lament. He says in Lamentations 5.20, yes, we have that great verse in that book about God's faithful love. His mercies are new every morning, but we also have this. Verse 20, why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? The why questions, the how long questions were asked by some of the most spiritual people in all the Bible. But Jesus said, there is no person greater in all the earth born of women than John the Baptist. It was John the Baptist who was the first one to really see and notice that this Jesus really was the Son of God. He was the one who declared, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was the one who saw the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus like a dove at the baptism of the Lord Jesus. Yet, look at this question he asked. Matthew eleven two 2 and 3. Now, when John heard in prison, don't miss that. John's been imprisoned. About the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Are you kidding me, John? What? John, really? Can you even ask this question, John? Are you really the Messiah or should we be looking for someone? What is he thinking? 
Well, it's an honest question, and Jesus doesn't scold. He sends a message back to him confirming that he truly was the Messiah. You see, all four of these people had something in common. They were going through tremendous stress, trials, tribulation, childlessness, the loss of family and all possessions, financial ruin. The very hope of Israel's God, Zion, Jerusalem, destroyed. And this man who wanted to fade away into obscurity that Jesus might be exalted now finds himself in prison. And John will lose his life as a martyr. All of these people were going through tremendous trials. And those trials led them to ask honest, hard questions. Now, when you look in the Psalms, most of them will have a heading. And this one is attributed to David. We don't know the exact context of why David wrote this. Perhaps he was running away from King Saul, living in exile. Perhaps his son Absalom had taken over the throne and here he was with civil war within his own family. We're not certain what enemy was against him, but here's what we're certain of. Whatever had been going on in David's life, according to David, it had been going on long enough. <laughs> Four times he asked, how long, how long, how long, how long? It reminded me <laughs> of a situation that happened 15 years ago when our daughter was born. We brought her home from the hospital, just perfect little baby, wonderful little child the first week. But then she developed this thing called colic. And my mother-in-law remembers coming to visit. I don't remember saying this. But with colic, whatever you try to do to make the baby stop crying, it doesn't work. We tried everything. Jiggling, dancing, putting her in her car seat on top of a washing machine or a dryer, making sure she didn't, she didn't fall off, but that vibration, taking her on rides. Wrapping her up, whatever we could do, and I, I'd had enough. And so Jennifer's mom came to visit in Louisville, Kentucky, right before we moved to Opelika, and she said, Cade, you said to me, in the moment of your desperation, as your little daughter was crying, you said, this has got to stop. <laughs> and it didn't stop for several more months, but it finally did. Because here's the truth. Here's a, here's a secondary truth, a principle. In the shorter term, we tend to handle things a lot better than the long term. If she'd been crying for a week or two, sure. But when it carries on for two, three, four weeks, months, that's when it gets really hard. It's like we, the stress, we can't handle it. And, and honestly, this is what's been happening to David. Something had happened in his life, and it had been going on for so long, he just couldn't hold up anymore. And he cries out, how long, O oh Lord? So if you're a true follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to have these questions. You can't escape them. Secondly, 
Secondly, this comes directly from the psalm. Emotional distress very well can lead to spiritual barrenness. And I could also say this, that a feeling of spiritual barrenness can also lead to emotional distress. Look again at verses 1 and 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? He feels abandoned by God, forgotten by God. This idea of hiding your face, what this means in, in, is that God was no longer shining his face of blessing upon him. You ever had times in your life where you just felt like God just wasn't really blessing you anymore? That's how David felt. In Psalm 2, uh, verse 2, he also says that he is taking counsel within his soul. In other words, God was being silent to him. He wasn't hearing God's instruction. Instead, he was turning inward, which is what we do when we go through trials like this. We turn inward. And we begin to counsel ourselves and those plans that we try to make to fix the situation only lead to more and more emotional stress. That's what happened to him. He had despair in his soul. He is experiencing sorrow of heart all the day. This was full-blown depression. This is what Jesus experienced for us. In the Garden of Gethsemane, just hours before he would go to the cross, he told his disciples, my soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. And there on that cross, Jesus took your sins and my sins and the sins of the world upon himself. What did he say on that cross? Uh, several things, but one thing I want to share with you comes directly from Psalm 22.1, which is also a lament psalm. So on the cross, Jesus laments with this scripture. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. If Jesus can ask this kind of question of the Father, certainly the psalmist and us. We can ask, how long, O oh Lord? Emotional stress, distress can lead to this spiritual barrenness. This spiritual barrenness can lead to emotional distress. So how are we to respond? Number three, prayer. Prayer is the right and fitting response to our distress. Rather than continuing to question, the psalmist David begins to petition. Look again at verses 3 and 4. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Oh, the plea is a desperate one in verse 3. He says, Lord, if you don't answer me, all I see happening is death, my enemy defeating me, and my foes rejoicing because I am shaken. And as dire as things, as things seem for David, these verses are the turning point. A simple outline of Psalm 13 is this. 
You have David's complaint or his question, verses 1 and 2. You have David's prayer or his plea, verses 3 and 4. Then you have David's declaration of trust in verses 5 and 6. So 3 and 4, that's, this is the turning point of the whole psalm. And it's found in his prayers. You see, his prayers counter his feelings of despair. His feelings have told him that God is far away from him, that God has abandoned him, that God is hiding his face from him. And the literal translation, you know, lots of times the NIV kind of gets a bad rap for not being as literal of a translation. But in the Hebrew, consider me is a good translation, but even better is look on me. That's a direct counter to God. You're not looking at me. You don't even see me. You've abandoned me. God, look on me. Look, God, look. That's an honest prayer. It's a good prayer. His feelings tell him God is not speaking. And perhaps God was speaking, but what happens in our distress is we can't hear him. We become so consumed in the here and now and the stress of our depression and pain and and struggle that we can't even hear God. He's taking counsel within his own soul. That's why he says to God, answer me. I'm crying out to you, God. Look on me. Answer me. He asked God to light up his eyes. What does that mean? Well, to lighten eyes or to brighten eyes is an idiom for the renewal of vigor. This is his prayer for God to restore him to health, to bring him back to health. Look at verses 5 and 6. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now what just happened here? Does David have multiple personality disorder? What has happened in just such a few verses to have such a dramatic shift? The only answer I can give is that his prayer was answered. His prayer was answered. There is a tremendous turnaround in verses 5 and 6 compared to verses 1 and 2. Our proper response is that of prayer. When we're distressed, when we're trials and tribulations. Number four. We are to put our hope in God's steadfast love and remember his goodness in our lives. One of the joys of doing sermon series is I like to get commentaries and read and learn. And and one of these commentaries, Derek Kidner, a classic commentary on Psalms, writes this. However great the pressure, the choice is still his to make not the enemies, and God's covenant remains. Oh, there's good news. There's good news that no matter how we feel, and how we feel is important, no matter what we are thinking about, and what we're thinking about is important, no matter what we are doing or have done, and what we do and what we've done, that's also important. But no matter what all those things are, 
who God is doesn't change. His love is unchanging. Unchanging. And David has a choice to make, and so do we. The enemy doesn't have the choice to make over our lives. And we have an enemy. He's very real. His name is Satan, Lucifer. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy you and me. But God's covenant with us remains. His steadfast love. This is not emotional love that we think about in our culture when we hear the word love. This is loyal, covenant love, enduring allegiance, committed love, a determined love that says, I will even no matter what. I think we see this illustrated in the book of Ruth. We have Naomi, a woman from Israel who because of famine had to go to the land of Moab. She had a husband and two sons, but she became a widow at a young age as Elimelech, her husband, died. Then her two sons, who had also married Orpah and Ruth, those two sons die. And now these three widow women have a big choice to make, big decision to make. Naomi gives counsel to her daughters-in-law. She says, you're young. There's still time for you to raise a family of your own, to find another husband. Go back to your people. Orpah listens to her mom. Ruth refuses. In fact, the Bible says that she clung to Naomi. She says, wherever you go, that's where I'm going to go. Wherever you stay, that's where I'm going to stay. Your people shall be my people. Your God's going to be my God. That's the kind of love that God has for you. Nothing can break it. Nothing can shake it. That steadfast, loyal love. And he can also in this psalm respond with rejoicing because he can say, God has dealt bountifully with me. Somehow, by the grace of God, that, that fog that's over the psalmist, it breaks. Don't you love it when the clouds part and the sun breaks through? The, the clouds break for him and he can remember how God has been so good to him. So good. He can even rejoice in God's salvation because those experiences of God's goodness in our past can give us hope for the future. Donald Williams in his commentary writes this, God does open our eyes to himself. Once again, we get in touch with his mercy from the past and have assurance of his salvation for the future, bringing forth our songs of praise. From questions of despair to songs of praise. So how? How do you and I, how do we regain that sense of God's presence, his favor in our lives? At the end of his chapter on Psalm 13, Gerald Wilson in his NIV application commentary asked this same question. When God is, seems absent from us, how do we regain a sense of his presence? He gives an answer in three ways. I put this in your bulletin insert. He says, first, voice our complaints. He says, 
for him, journaling. That's when he journals. And this, that's, that's when I journal. After the tragedy in February, there was several weeks I didn't really have a prayer life at all. I was just numb. And one of the first things I did was begin to write just how I felt about everything in the life of this church. And I wrote, and I wrote, and I wrote. And I'm not a journal writer. My wife is a wonderful writer. She journals beautiful things. I just don't do that. But I do when my heart is grieving. And that was healing for me. Voice your complaints. Speak them out loud if necessary. Secondly, Wilson says we've got to get outside of ourselves. Because here's what happens. When we get in periods of emotional distress and pain and despair, we begin to navel gaze. We look inward. And Wilson says, I found that when I begin to look around me and see people in need and begin to serve others, it takes the focus off of myself. That's good advice. But his last word, I think, is the best. He says, we regain a sense of God's presence in the community of faith. See, there's this lie the devil wants to feed us. That when things get really, really bad, that's when we should not even go around other believers. He wants to isolate us, separate us, destroy us. But more than ever before, when we're going through hard times, we need one another. You may not be able to sing that song of praise, but that brother or that sister in Christ, they're singing that praise to God, and you can feed off of that. You can find strength from that. You need that holding of their hand. You need them to hug you, to encourage you, to lay hands on you, to pray for you. We need each other more than ever before. In times of trial. So I kind of put these as well in my own words. How do we regain a sense of God's presence? One, be honest with God and speak those questions to him. Just speak them to him. Don't stuff them. Don't bury those questions. Voice them to God. Number two, pray. Prayer made all the difference in this psalm. We have to take our fears, our frustrations to God in prayer. Three, remember God's steadfast love and his goodness in our lives. That's the foundation for trust. Just trust that this too shall pass, that God's going to give me the grace to get through this trial. I love Psalm 27, 13. Psalm 27, such a psalm of hope, how the Lord is our light. Verse 13, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. It's not just that, oh, I'm going to have hope in God in heaven one day. No, I'm going to see God's goodness while I'm alive. That's trust. That's hope. That's faith. May God give us that. I'll close with this. James Boyce in his wonderful commentary writes this. If you are suffering from a sense of feeling abandoned by God, which is what this psalm is about, I cannot tell you when the emotional oppression will lift, but it will lift. The curtain of your despair will rise. And behind the veil, you will see the blessed Lord Jesus Christ who has been with you and has loved you all the time. We may feel like that he has abandoned us, but we can hang our hat on the promise, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. There are no orphans of God.
only sons and daughters. This morning, maybe you are going through the valley of despair, of deep darkness right now. And you needed this message to give you hope, and I pray it has. And maybe you want to come make this, these front steps a makeshift altar to pour out your heart to God. You come and pray. Maybe you just want me to pray over you. Maybe you know someone who is hurting, and the two of you can come together, and you can be the body of Christ for them, praying for them. You come. This time is for us to pray together. It may be, Pastor, I, I want to be a part of a church that's going to walk beside me. We're not perfect at all. But one thing this church is pretty good at is coming alongside of people who are hurting and standing in for them and loving them and feeding them and praying for them. You come be a part of a church that, that's a family. Lastly, you may say, Pastor, I, I just, I need, I need something that I can hold on to. It could be that you've never given your life to Jesus. He is the rock. He is the one. His love for you has never wavered one time. Oh, our love for him wavers, but his love for us never wavers. He proved it on the cross. He died for you. He rose from the dead. He wants to live inside of you. He wants to be your Savior. You come. You come know him today. I want to invite you to stand, and we're going to sing. I think Jesus keep me near the cross. Oh, that's a great place to go. It's so strange, isn't it, that we as Christians find such hope in an old rugged cross. A place of torture, a place of suffering, a place of death. Yet we find that we can bring all of our burdens and lay them at the foot of our Savior.